Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And a very good afternoon and all that. This is Peter Williams on Reality Check Radio. Ahead of us, plenty of comment on the issues of our times, plus some of your feedback. And you can send feedback to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Also this afternoon, some thoughts some comments on disinformation, on supermarket profits and on education. But first up, the worst part of yesterday's rebranding of Three Waters into affordable water reform is, is frankly the lack of questioning about where the real power of the water services legislation will still lie. Now, as this show has mentioned often before, what happens with water services, if and when this legislation ever gets to a starting date, will be dictated by Māori, iwi and hapu. Forget the regional representation groups, forget the appointed boards of these now 10 water services entities and their ability to make their own decisions. The real power rests with those who can make te mana o te wai statements and... Only iwi or hapu, according to the legislation, can do that. If an iwi or hapu decides it wants a particular issue regarding water attended to, well, it can make a te mana o te wai statement and the entity must give effect to that statement. In other words, do what the iwi or hapu says. That is real power. And that's what the government is still allowing to happen under its lipstick on a pig rebranding of Three Waters yesterday. Yet why is nobody asking questions about this? Where is the questioning by the mainstream media on the matter? I mean, it's not as if they won't be aware of it. Writers like Graham Adams and Thomas Cranmer have covered it extensively. The answer must lie surely in the conditions attached to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, from which the MSM, the mainstream media, have taken literally millions of dollars in the last three years. The conditions of that money say that the MSM must actively promote the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. Now, journalism is not and never has been about actively promoting anything. Journalism is supposed to be about questioning the lawmakers, holding truth to power. But on this matter, the hugely important matter of te mana o te wai statements in water legislation, what do we hear? Nothing. It's disgraceful. A non-questioning media has been bought off by government money. And don't let anyone tell you anything different. Uh, Some of you might have encountered a documentary doing the rounds online at the moment called Silenced. Uh, The producer, Samantha Blanchard, featured uh, with Paul uh, a couple of days ago. Now, it turns out that I'm featured in the documentary, but that's not the point of what I'm about to say. The documentary is about the way discussion and other opinions on the COVID vaccine and other treatment of the virus was shut down, especially during 2021. I was interviewed for the program nearly a year ago by Sam Blanchard, 
Uh, she also had interviews with the sociologist uh, Jody Brunning and a Nelson doctor, Anne O'Reilly, who, frankly, uh, both of them had far more important things to say in the program than me. Anyway, Samantha Blanchard was finally able to upload the documentary to the internet last Friday night. It, uh, it has its own website, Silenced. .co.nz. She also put it up on YouTube and Vimeo, rather, uh, just to provide extra access to it. Well, as you can imagine, it didn't last a day on YouTube before it was taken down. And a couple of days ago, we hear that Vimeo has censored the program too. Now, I think those two actions alone say why a program like this needed to be made. There is nothing more fundamental to a liberal and democratic society than the ability to speak freely and without fear of being shut down. Yes, your ideas can be disagreed with. Yes, others may have different opinions, but everybody has a right to be heard. But it's obvious still that is a concept not shared by everybody. The great thing is that the documentary has its own website with the program embedded in it, silenced, .co.nz and I commend it to you. I have to say that I'm very pleased that Harry is going to his dad's coronation as king in what, three weeks? Three weeks today, New Zealand time it'll be, May the 5th. That's because well I hate to see families completely torn apart and they should always come together for significant occasions like weddings and funerals and graduations and, and yes, coronations. Uh, even if the branches of the family that are at war with each other are on opposite sides of the room, at least they're in the same room and acknowledging a significant milestone, which I think is a downside better than not acknowledging it. Frankly, I don't care about whether Harry's wife goes. I think she's the one that's driven this whole shambles in the first place. Harry seemed a genuinely good bloke who was the most popular member of the royal family until she came along and got inside his head. Or maybe got inside someplace else, I don't know. Harry and his father and brother obviously have a relationship which at best could be described as uh, frosty. But Charles's coronation is a big deal. An occasion which hasn't happened for 70 years. It will be a spectacular masterclass in pageantry and tradition as only the British can do, presented in a very 21st century way. I'm really looking forward to watching it. But it's very much a family affair too. And that's why it's important that Harry, despite clenching his teeth over the occasion, is there to be part of it. I think his kids should be too, because after all, their granddad is being crowned the king. But I guess uh, the Wicked Witch of Montecito has won that battle. This is Reality Check Radio. Uh, here's some thoughts on a local story. It is a local story, but it still involves national politics. I think we can now say that without any shadow of a doubt, Labour have given up trying to win the Waitaki electorate in the election this year. They've announced their candidate uh, in the last couple of days. And while I should feel a little proud that a former head boy of my old school, Waitaki Boys High School, is that candidate, uh, the point is he was the head boy only last year. Staggering, isn't it? Uh, the boy's name is uh, Ethan Ryle. Well, I think that's how the name is pronounced. It's spelled R-E-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. 
And while some around his uh, his hometown of Omaru might know uh, how to say it, the first piece of advice I would have given his campaign team in the announcement is a pronunciation guide, because if you want to be talked about, it's best people know how to say your name. Uh, the Waitaki electorate is important to me because that's the constituency I vote in, even though I live in central Otago. The Waitaki electorate uh, geographically is a very large one. It's a pretty safe national party seat, but the current MP, Jackie Dean, is retiring, so there will be new blood representing the area. The national party candidate is a South Canterbury farmer uh, called Miles Anderson. He seems a nice enough guy. I've met him, but put it this way. Uh, He is not future Prime Minister material. So we have a a low-key farmer and an 18-year-old as the candidates for the two main parties in the seat this year. Now, look, I have nothing against 18-year-olds. I was one myself once upon a time. But there are some jobs that 18-year-olds are not ready to do, and being a member of Parliament is one of them. Now, you know, up until 1994, I'd never heard of either Juliet Hume or Pauline Parker. But then came that famous movie, Heavenly Creatures, directed by Peter Jackson in his younger days before Lord of the Rings and starring Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet. And very quickly, the country became entranced by the memories of a quite bizarre murder in Christchurch 40 years prior in June of 1954. I mention all this because we heard the news yesterday that Juliet Hume, who was uh, in later years better known as Anne Perry, one of the murderesses, uh, died at the age of 84. You probably know the story, but a quick recap for you. Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker killed Pauline's mother because their respective parents wanted to break up what was uh, being seen as a... um, uh, in the 1950s, as uh, as too close a relationship between teenage girls, if you uh, if you know what I mean, uh, the two were convicted. They went to prison for a few years, then moved overseas. Ironically, both to Scotland, but they apparently never saw each other again. Juliet Hume changed her name to Anne Perry, became a famous novelist, wrote a hundred books, and had some of them made into movies. She's died at the age of 84. How do we remember her? Let's just say it was an extraordinary life, absolutely a unique life. She'll certainly be remembered, uh, but for all the wrong reasons. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is RCR. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, my address through email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I will share some of your feedback shortly. But you would have heard much of the of the disinformation project in recent times run by a couple of academics, Kate Hanna and Sanjawa Hatotua. The disinformation project has been a a sort of modern-day reds-under-the-beds organisation, making all sorts of extraordinary claims about right-wing hate groups spreading misinformation and disinformation. Uh, Their latest claims this ridiculous notion that hate directed to members of the trans community had risen to genocide levels, uh, putting aside the very pertinent fact that genocide is an act against an ethnicity or a nation, not against those of a sexual persuasion, uh, there was absolutely no evidence that any sort of mass harm was planned against trans people. But Victoria University's Bryce Edwards has done us all a service by pointing out the serious credibility issues 
that the disinformation project has. The other point is uh, they don't at the moment appear to have any funders anymore. Their contract with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is finished. Auckland University has cut them free as well, so they're looking for some sympathetic backers for their mostly unproven nonsense. It's a really good piece from Dr Bryce Edwards, one that says uh, if you have given any credibility in the past to what the disinformation project has said, uh, don't bother anymore. You can read all about it on democracyproject.nz. I think it will make you feel a lot better. A little bit of feedback for you. This from Jim. Great radio, Peter. You and the best of the team are a breath of fresh air. A personal comment, though, read the bridging music. A good choice. But have you got a less rocky, beat-driven selection which allows one to work and read on between your vocal segments? Keep up the good work. Uh, Thank you, Jim. I will pass the message on to the man who programs the music, a bloke who goes by the name of Paul Brennan. Yes, he's the one in charge around here. Uh, To Anthony, you've written uh, the following. You've uh, sent a link, and I thank you for it. It it is a quote from something that you've found, and it refers to a program called The Great Global Warming Swindle, which was a program shown on British television actually all the way back in 2007. But uh, you've found this piece, which you've sent to me, The The Great Global Warming Swindle, debunks the myths and exposes what may prove to be the darkest chapter in the history of mankind. According to a group of leading scientists brought together by documentary maker Martin Durkin, everything you've ever been told about global warming is probably untrue. Just as we've begun to take it for granted that climate change is a man-made phenomenon, Durkin's documentary slays the whole premise of global warming. Global warming has become a story of huge political significance, environmental activists using scare tactics to further their cause, scientists adding credence to secure billions of dollars in research money, politicians after headlines, and a media happy to play along. No one dares speak against it for risk of being unpopular, losing funds, or jeopardising careers. Unquote. Uh, Thank you for that, Anthony. Who could disagree with any of it? But I see that the New Zealand government is still sending literally billions and billions of dollars off to the United Nations to help in the fight against global warming. Meanwhile, China, the world's biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, just still keeps on building those coal-fired power stations and nobody says a thing. Why are we being played as suckers? I don't know. I really do not know. Uh, but it is so frustrating. Now, this has come in from Mark. It's in relation to something I said a few days back about facial recognition technology. And I basically said that uh, it was frustrating that the Privacy Commission has stopped supermarkets using uh, FRT. Uh, They've put FRT systems in place to try and cut down on shoplifting. The Privacy Commission says you cannot do that. So Mark has uh, written, he says, the Privacy Commission actually got this one right. He says, we must fight every digital surveillance foot in the door with every breath we have. We are doing it for our kids and our grandkids. 
Interesting attitude, Mark. Thank you for that. I just want to stop shoplifting. Um, I mean, frankly, we are we are digitally and CCTV tracked so much nowadays. There is no real privacy anyway. But stopping shoplifting and indeed all retail crime must be an ambition all of us should have. And I just think anything to help in the battle is really important. But thank you for your thoughts, Mark, on that matter. If you'd like to get in touch, uh, my address is inbox at realitycheck.radio. This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. Uh, This is Reality Check Radio, an interesting story on News Hub last night about supermarket margins. I thought the story was intriguing, but rather misleading to say the least, because the item was based on gross profit margins. And there's a lot of expense after the gross profit before the supermarket makes its actual profit. Things like, well, staff wages, paying the running costs of the shop, like the power, the rates, the insurance, the interest. And then just because one lettuce supplier reckons the lettuce he sold to foodstuffs for $3 was then on sold to a shopper for $6, that would appear to be far from typical. In fact, Countdown's owners, Woolworths, say they reported only a 25% gross profit margin and they had to meet expenses after that. But despite all that and the ever-increasing drain on supermarket profits by shoplifters, as we've just talked about, the government, it seems, just cannot keep its hands off free enterprise. So it's putting in a grocery commissioner. And then, Duncan Webb, the Commerce Minister, says they may force some supermarkets to be sold to a third player outside of foodstuffs and countdown. A third player who at the moment doesn't exist, but who would surely have set up already if there was a market for it. I mean, this is just nonsense from the government, isn't it? Yes, the supermarket companies are powerful, but it's a fiercely, fiercely competitive game. And when new laws, which will prevent a new world stopping a countdown opening up across the road, really take effect, the competition will be even fiercer. If you want an example of it, go to the central Otago town of Alexandra. The New World owner in Alexandra uh, has found things very tough ever since Countdown opened up literally on the other side of Centennial Avenue. That's competition for you, and that is what a consumer wants in the supermarket game. Now, if you're concerned about the education system in this country, you should be even more appalled at what is now being introduced under the auspices of the new curriculum for years one to eight, the primary school years. This is a newish document from the Ministry of Education. It's called Relationships and Sexuality Education. I quote from it. In science, akonga, that's the word that the ministry now uses for students, it's tereo for learners, akonga can consider how biological sex has been constructed and measured over time and what this means in relation to people who have variations in sex characteristics. And then it goes on to say, our students, akonga, can consider variations in puberty, including the role of hormone blockers. I kid you not, this is for teaching up to the ages of 12 and 13. Hormone blockers are being discussed at primary school. I mean, what are we trying to do to our children? But here's a significant point. The number of children being homeschooled has doubled in the last five years. 
even though there are only about 12,000 kids being homeschooled. That's only 1.3% of the school population. That's double what it was back in 2017. Then there's the 15% at private schools, and you can see the number of parents who want their kids out of the state education system is significant, and it's growing. And frankly, who's surprised? And on the same theme, I've had this sent through to me as well. It's, uh, it's official teaching material from education.govt.nz, a series of slides about uh, the subject of menstrual periods. And slide number two says, here are some tips to make your period conversations more inclusive. Having a period isn't just a feminine thing. People of all genders can experience periods. Avoid and be conscious of referring to period products as feminine hygiene products or women's health. Instead, say period products, menstruation products, or use the names for the specific products you are referring to, such as pads or tampons, etc. Avoid and be conscious of using the words women or girls exclusively when discussing periods. Instead, say people who menstruate, people who have periods, or menstruators. That's, my friends, is from the Ministry of Education in New Zealand in 2023. I'm speechless. I really am speechless. And I imagine you are too. Now, for the second time in a week, I have a story about a naked man. I'm just going on facts as reported in the paper, the Otago Daily Times today. But At Kaka Point, you might remember the story, Kaka Point on the South Otago coast, a man who regularly walks naked on the beach there has been taken to court and found to be not committing any offence, even though some people see him and don't like it. Up the road in Alexandra, though, in central Otago, a man called Stanley Corns has walked around in his own yard naked and that apparently offended a woman who was nearby picking flowers on public land. She saw Mr Corns and challenged him. Well, that's the reporting of the incident, I presume. She challenged him to put some clothes on because she didn't like seeing him naked. There is absolutely no hint of any sexual assault, and Mr Corns was on his own private property. But he was fined $750 and put on six months' supervision. Uh, Apparently this sort of thing has happened before, it says. It doesn't say whether uh, Mr Corn's previous naked frolics were on private or public property. But on reading these incidents, I'm thinking, hmm, isn't there a double standard here? A man at Kaka Point is allowed to walk naked on a public beach, but a man can't be naked, cannot be naked on his own property uh, two or three hours up the road in Alexandra. I tried to find out if being naked in a public place is actually illegal. I'm sure it's not illegal on private property, but from what I can find, it's not illegal to be naked in a public place unless you are deemed to be causing offence. But it seems being offended is in the eyes of the beholder, and in this case, too, in the eyes of the judge. Based on what I read in the Otago Daily Times, Mr Corns would be pretty hard done by. He's being fined $750 for walking in his own yard naked just because a woman picking flowers was upset by it. It's bizarre. 
I'd like to share with you now something written by Dr. Michael Bassett, esteemed historian, former Labour cabinet minister in the David Longy years back in the 1980s. He's written today, in January, when Chris Hipkins took over as prime minister, he promised a policy reset. Everyone waited patiently, and when the announcement came, quite a few were prepared to think we really did have a new Labour government. Nanaya Mahuta's obsession with Three Waters was scaled back. She was stripped of the local government portfolio, demoted almost to the bottom of the cabinet, and encouraged to stay offshore as long as possible, tending to her foreign affairs portfolio. Michael Bassett continues, however, we now know that that optimism was misplaced. Maorification continues and every aspect of the policy survives. Moreover, having demoted her, Hipkins reveals that he now feels he should have given more support to Mahuta as she advanced her tribal takeover schemes. And he goes on to write, If Hipkins had reflected for a moment, he would realise that per head of the population, Maori access more state resources than any other ethnicity. The health system spends disproportionately more money trying to track down Maori for child vaccinations and every other intervention that could assist them to live healthier lives. Maori have no problem with access to health services that isn't experienced by everyone else. It's just that too many Maori families care so little about their children that they fail to take them to services even when they're available in their neighbourhoods. The same with education. Any school will tell you that the services they provide are readily available to Māori. Access to education is racially blind, but too many Māori parents are feckless and don't make sure their children go to school in some areas, as few as 37% of Maori children get to school. Too many of them leave home, then drift off with junior gang affiliates, stealing cars and ram-raiding stores. And then Michael Bassett concludes, The idea that society will improve if more cash is poured over Maori obviously isn't working, and hasn't ever since the domestic purposes benefit was introduced in 1974. Labour's out-of-date answers to today's problems are having the opposite effect to that intended. If Hipkins could empanel a group of experienced Māori, along with a few other ethnicities, to come up with proposals for streamlining access to welfare while examining why so many current policies are failing Māori, there could be some cautious optimism written by a man who's been there and done that and seen a lot in his 80-something years on the planet. I recommend the whole article to you. It's on Bassett, Brash and Hyde. Com, written by Dr. Michael Bassett. This is Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company on this Friday afternoon. Have a very good weekend, and I look forward to talking with you again on Monday on Reality Check Radio. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio.